Something for the girl with everything. Welcome to Unfrozen, episode number 70. I'm your co-host, Greg Lindsay. And I'm Dan Safarik, and today is the second edition of our Trespass series, in which we look at invasions of architectural space for various rhetorical and self-improvement purposes. And today we are very, very happy to have on the show Andy Schmid, uh, an artist and architect uh, originally from Hungary, who uh, in Just before the uh, throes of COVID set in, uh, undertook a very interesting project, which was to go to more than uh, two dozen high-rise buildings, uh, residential buildings in New York, uh, masquerading as a different kind of uh, class of person uh, in order to gain access and uh, and, uh, basically conduct uh, photography and uh, some very trenchant observations about the way that real estate agents deal with their prospective customers when they think they have tens of millions of dollars to spend on an apartment that they may or may not be occupying. So welcome very much, Andy. Hi, thank you for having me. So the book that uh, that, uh, emanated from this project was called Private Views. Um, What was the the sort of impetus for, for starting the project? I know that you were you were in New York already on some kind of a fellowship. Yeah, so it was 2016, and I was on an artist residency program at Triangle Arts Association. And basically, um, the project I started to work on, um, yeah, it was private views. And the way it started, like when I came here, I had no idea what I'm gonna work on because you don't have to know it in this specific residency beforehand. And that was kind of my second time in New York, but the first one, which was like longer than just a tourist visit, it was three months. And um, when the first time I went up to the Empire State Building, it's like really the biggest cliche, um, I was just like really amazed by the views, just like I think every tourist is. Um, And I somehow ended up spending there longer than necessary amount of time. And I was really looking at the view First, obviously, the small cars, small people, everything moving. And then slowly I realized that there are quite a few buildings that are at the same level or even higher than the Empire State Building's top floor or the observatory deck. Um, And at the beginning, I was just really wondering what the view might look like from different perspective of the city. Back then... Um, observatory decks of Hudson Yards and One Vanderbilt and these things did not exist and well still now up until today there's no observatory deck which would be like right at the Central Park or other locations or Tribeca so I really had this kind of touristic um, curiosity at first so I started to just like map out for myself the buildings from which I wanted to see New York from and they all happened to be newly built ultra luxury real estate. Um, some of them, actually, kind of at least like half of them, were still under construction at that point. Um, 
and in all of them, there were um, properties available for sale or for rent. Um, and so basically, when I realized that all of these are private residential skyscrapers, I realized I have absolutely no way to get in them. Um, either I befriend someone living in these spaces, which is obviously impossible. Um, also, because in some of them, there's no one living yet. Um, and then at some point in the middle of the night, it came to my mind that, oh, I can just look at them as a prospective buyer. And so that's what I did. And I started to call up agencies, and that's, that's how it started. And you invented a fictional persona of your buyer. Could you please introduce us to Gabriella and her husband, Zoltan? How did you concoct it? And, and would you do an impression of her for us, please? Does she differ radically from you? Absolutely not. She's kind of... <laughs> as similar to me as it's possible when you go to buy expensive real estate. So I kind of like tried to keep her as much Andy as possible. So Gabriela is my middle name. So it was just like very convenient because not many, but at some of these properties, they would do like identity check. So I would go with my real surname and my middle name, which is ungoogleable or like I don't come up as a result. Um, but my passport is fine with that. Um, and, um, and then the persona itself really evolved kind of based on the assumption of the agents about me. So I would go to the very first viewing and the agent would start to ask me questions like, do you have a chef? Do you have a nanny? Do you have a um, chauffeur? And whatever spontaneous answer I would give in that instance, that would become Gabriela's persona. And so basically over time, Gabriela's persona became how agents imagined um, Eastern European multimillionaire person. But at the same time, there were obviously some things that I made Gabriela to be, which was just like her profession. So she studied architecture just so, yeah, that's what I did. So it's kind of easier to be as natural as possible um, in that context. And other than that, I had a child. I mean, Gabriela had a child, so we can have a nanny. So, well, basically, just so you can look for huge apartments. Or, like, it makes more sense to look for huge apartments, even though very quickly I realized that looking for huge apartment doesn't really need um, family to live there. But, yeah, we're going to get there. I noticed that a lot of the, um, a lot of the book captures one-to-one -one dialogue did you surreptitiously record these interactions with the agents? So I had my iPhone with me and I was kind of like constantly recording the viewings for my husband who was not present. Uh, my husband was um, in the story, a really good friend of mine, Zoltan from Hungary. He's um, antique dealer and he has like a contemporary art, art gallery. So all of those are kind of businesses which um, can or cannot be like produce enough money. But it's kind of imaginable. So it's kind of like this like unclear type of businesses of how much money is behind it. And it was um, it gave me the green light to to enter these properties just to give his name. Um, and so and so very, yeah, basically every time the agents even encouraged me to like record everything for Zoltan. And so my phone was in my hand and it was kind of just like recording the footsteps. And sometimes occasionally I showed the views on the recording. 
And as a byproduct, it was recording the conversations, which at the beginning I didn't realize they would be so cool. But at the end, um, just all those recordings somehow made sense to overlap it with the photographs of the views of these places. Um, because I think it really reveals a lot of this whole ultra-luxury real estate as a phenomenon. So just a quick mechanical question. Our previous guest in the series, Zachary Balber, uh, was a sort of real estate photographer at the time. So he was attending as uh, working with the agent to actually shoot that side of it. Um, you, I believe, shot most photography with a Nikon. Were you sort of unhurried then? You just basically sort of took it in as you were shooting photography of your husband as well, which gave you time then? Or mechanistically, how did you frame your shots or take that Right, time? right, right. It was a bit weird because the camera I was using was enormous, and it's a film camera, so it has that, like, sound of, like, the film rolling and also just, like, unnecessarily big. It's kind of, I don't know what size this would be, but... When you're an eccentric Eastern European billionaire, exactly. I mean, yes. But that that was my kind of conclusion of it, that every time I took out that camera and I just asked, oh, do you mind if I take a picture for my husband? They would be always like, yes, of course. I took out the camera and some of them, some of the agents would realize it's a film camera. And then after I took the picture, they would just like immediately switch the conversation and they would start to talk to me about our art collection. So it kind of like put me in the category of an artsy millionaire rather than just a billionaire. So what I realized, like at the beginning, I was like very um, nervous about how do I dress and how do I behave and all of those things. And very quickly, I realized that kind of like the weirder I act or behave or like it's basically that everything goes like I don't have to be perfect in any sense or I don't because I obviously I also have no idea or I did not have any idea at the beginning of like how should I look like how should I behave but obviously anyone can be a millionaire wife or anyone can be a millionaire and actually many of that class is just like doesn't show off or it's it's not something that's obvious that you have to have the perfect makeup or perfect hair um, so at the end, I was just really going in like thrift shop jackets and they even asked me, where did I buy them? So yeah, everything kind of like gets a different meaning when you're in that space and when you are that person, I guess. And was there ever a point where you thought, uh-oh, gigs up, I'm caught? So I think when you go... As a different person, you're always a bit paranoid, whether like, oh, do they know it or not? But very quickly, I think I kind of got over that sense of, oh, they must know it, because I would always get, get like follow-up emails if I like the apartment, if I want to see it an, uh, another time again. Um, so it kind of called me down always. And I think I was never really close to being caught. Maybe there was one agent who suspected something, um, who found my friends on my, because I used to be an artist in the gallery of this friend of mine. Um, the gallery closed ever since, but he found Andy Schmid on that gallery's website. And he asked me like, so are you also taking pictures or is, are these pictures? Because I saw something. So that was the only time um, that I just said, yeah, 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 I'm taking pictures and he's showing them sometimes. And it's kind of, he kept on, yeah, he followed up. So it did not seem to be like a big problem ultimately. 
but there were not many times when it when I think I was on the edge. There's definitely a, uh, two two big things that I wanted to get into that you you explore in your book, which one of which is the kind of well the architecture really the the proposition of these places and how there's actually quite a lot of sameness between them given how expensive they are you'd think they'd all be unique bespoke experiences but it actually was the same set of five or six top of the line appliances marble coming from literally the same quarry in italy etc um you depicted that quite well uh in the book, because it, it, it's not so much that I got to the end of it and I said, boy, this is boring, but just kind of like, wow, these really are all pretty similar. I, I've been in two or three of them and I thought it was just me, but like, no, they really are. So I guess uh, talk a little bit about that observation and how that revelation came so, to you. Okay, so basically, I think each and every of these apartments, just because of the composition, this, most of them are in the Pencil Towers of New York. So they just engineering wise have a very specific type of challenges so it's like a very tall and very thin building um, all of them have the elevators in the middle of them um, all of them have obviously all the rooms kind of like laid out around the edges so around the center um, so you see the views from the windows um, all of them when you first enter the apartment you kind of enter the living room or great room or however they call it in each apartment with the best view, which if it's next to the Central Park is the Central Park. If it's facing south, then the Empire State Building view or whatever it is. Um, each of them have like usually a corner master bedroom. So you have two views from there, um, obviously, which kind of became a meme of luxury. Um, each of them have the master bedrooms, bathroom with the um, soaking tub in front of the window. Um, and and then some of these like other things that came to it is the gallery walls, because it's kind of assumed that people at these price ranges have like a big art collection. Um, sometimes even sculpture corridors. Um, and yeah, and just the finishes are kind of the same. So like you have oak floor, I think in almost all of these apartments, um, you have like different type of marbles, but all marbles in the kitchens and in the bathrooms, the Calacata Tucci or yeah, they always state these like funny names, but basically just like, this is the best marble now. And then you go to the next apartment and they say another funny Italian name and they say that's the best marble now. But yeah, I think it's also because of the composition of the building itself, um, but also because of the needs of these ultra luxurious apartments that the floor plans are just kind of identical. Um, and at the same time, the fact that these apartments are kind of fully finished um, when you buy them or like when you get them, it really proves how these are not really meant for living because people who buy apartments at these price ranges never yeah never just like get whatever the developer gives them they always want their own architects and interior designers uh, to make it for them so that every last bit is to their own taste so the fact that it's like fully finished with the taste of the developer really shows that these are just investment tools um, in the simplest way well, speaking of which, this raises the question, I mean, obviously, 
you know, multiple times on on Frozen, for example, Peter Rees, the master planner of London, you know, has criticized London's towers as safety deposit boxes in the sky, and that's obviously what these are. I'm curious, um, did you ever have discussions with the sales agents about the financial mechanics? Did they ever ask you about the LCC that we purchasing this, et cetera, et cetera? Because right now in New York, we're, uh, we're only about two weeks away before Governor Hochul has to either sign or shelf a law that would require transparency into the LLCs, which would make the owners of all these apartments available if she agrees to sign it. So I'm curious, did you get into, did you fake your way through the financial mechanics as well, or is that they're too discreet? Okay. Did they bring it up? Um, okay, so what happened, another interesting phenomena which which was happening to me, is that every time I went to an apartment, they would always um, refer to all these like business matters that I should tell my husband. So for example, um, they would tell me, look how great the kitchen is, um, and please tell your husband that it's a really great investment, this apartment, because the value is just going up, etc. So I assume that with him, it probably could have got there, the conversation. But with me, it was really just like, I very often felt like they used me as a messenger to my husband. Um, and there were actually a few times when he was present. Uh, he came to one trip with me to New York. Um, and then he would come to these apartments. And to him, actually, they were starting to talk more about the financial parts, but he was just there kind of as a extra in the story. So he did not respond in that way. But no, it did not get there. Interesting. The other question I have is, is about, in addition to the similarity of taste, right? So I imagine you want that fungibility of the asset. What did you notice about the build quality? Because I believe, if I remember correctly, it's 432 Park Avenue, one of Maclow's buildings, where there's incredible lawsuits over wind and noise and others. What, what stood out to you in terms of the build quality and the architecture itself? Uh, I think, like, it depends on which building you go to. Like, really, um, I mean, as the years passed, I think they really got better at it. So that is one of the, I mean, the very first one, I think, of this type in the most extreme way is 157, um, which is 157 57th Street. Um, and in that one, I also did hear some of these noises because that was one of these like first engineering ones. It's like tall and thin tower. And 432 Park Avenue was really, I think, the first extreme one in this, um, yeah, I mean, like 157 was is still like kind of like half a hotel, so it has something else in it as well. But 432 is, yeah, just just is like purely residential tower, extremely tall, like one of the tallest buildings at its, yeah, when it got built, it was the tallest residential tower on the planet, not anymore because now it's Central Park Tower. Um, but I think it that's what. That's where it goes from, the problem, that it's really just kind of like, a, yeah, they made new things in there. Um, but it does. So in that one, I never was there when it was like a mess, heavy wind. Um, but I, but whenever I was there, you could hear these like strange noises, which also has to do with the fact that you don't hear any other noises because it's so well insulated, which is kind of uncommon in New York, I feel that. You go inside the building and you hear nothing of the street. And there you hear nothing of the street, but you hear the mechanics of the building way more. Um, and also, like, the wind at those heights are, is just, like, very different from, like, normal heights. So you can open a tiny window at the bottom of the seat 
and then you really hear that it's it's just really blowing even when down on the street level there's absolutely no wind going on um so yeah i felt it in that building but in this like newest ones uh, i think this these type of problems are more solved more like i did not feel them and I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit, uh, you know, in the description of how the conversations would go. But I think you unveiled just about as much about the gender politics that go into these these sales processes as you have about the architecture. Um, what was your takeaway from all that? Do you I mean, I'm trying to picture a situation where it would be clear that, you know, a woman going into the situation is using her own money. And why would you make an assumption about the fact that? She, ha- she must have a husband with money somewhere else. That just seems extremely retrograde in today's market, in today's culture. It is, yeah, I mean, it is very strange. On one hand, obviously, I was saying that, yeah, he is my husband, so they went after him and they saw something. But still, it's kind of like a retrograde um, vision of a relationship, that it's him who takes the decisions, e- yeah, even if it's kind of like more of his money than mine. But... Um, but I think after everything that surprised me, I started to do a little research. So, for example, in this specific thing, I, it was really easy to find the data that 85% of ultra-high net worth individuals, which is people with over 30 million net worth, are men, and 90% of actual billionaires are men. So I think that that rather than the backwardness of the agents, it shows so it shows their experience. So possibly any time that they've been dealing with couples at these price ranges, they experience that the man is in the decision at this point. But there were actually some agents who really kind of like acted and really made me feel like I'm part of their, I don't know, strange imagination. And they sat me down and they told me to close my eyes and imagine that I'm here with my husband and we are sipping on an expensive French champagne and um, and that the maids are just going around with my favorite food and like really strange, yeah, kind of like dramaturgy of how to sell an apartment, um, which obviously never happened when he was around. Um, I also felt at some point that um, that it's kind of like a double theater play or performance, right? I don't know how to say it. Like I'm acting my part, but they are also acting this weird um, person who is just kind of like trying to sell these apartments in a way that they must must not believe in what they are saying, or like it was just like so extreme. Well, related to that, in addition to the the gender performance, I'm also curious your thoughts. We did not mention at the outset, of course, that you are a Hungarian architect artist, uh, normally based in Budapest. So, in portraying an Eastern European, you know, ultra high net worth individual, there is also the politics of, as we know from reports, of Russian buyers of these. And I imagine, you know, Viktor Orban's Hungary has perhaps other Hungarians looking to park their wealth. I saw that uh, there's plans for a Dubai-style free zone in Hungary. So the, 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 I'm curious how you investigated the flows of wealth and how they interpreted you as an Eastern European in addition to Gulf clientele, Asian clientele. Uh, I'm curious how that factors in. Okay, so um, I think it also really depended on which building we were going to or I was going to. So for example, in, whenever I visited the Trump building, it was assumed that, yeah, 
we would vote for Trump and and agents would tell us how um, very fortunate times are coming for us. It was just after the 216 elections and that how great is what happening to us and and that and that it's really good time for us to invest because for sure the taxation will become easier now in the US. Um, so we should really just grab onto it now. Um, but in some other buildings, I felt that politics was kind of like um, taboo with the agents. I assumed they did not want to um, yeah, say the wrong thing in any direction. But um, there were some conversations where in a really subtle way things came up and it was somehow I was portraying myself as an opposition to Orban um, family. And then when in the very rare occasions that it really came out, they were kind of like really encouraging that conversation and they were really curious about how that works in Hungary. Um, I feel at that point there were not that many buyers yet from Hungary, um, from dislike Orbans, whatever, corrupted money. But since then, um, there has been reports that um, the national bank's son's wife just bought an apartment in New York in one of these buildings, etc. But that came a few years later. You know, I'm just yeah, I was curious whether the conversations about capital flight comes up in this. I, I forget if the United States really has a program, the EB-5 visa, but obviously many nations do where, you know, ownership of real estate becomes a pathway to visas and citizenship. And, of course, yeah. of course. It did not come up. Mm-hmm. I think um, they just somehow assumed that that's kind of sorted out for us. Yeah, they did ask a few times if we had a um, real estate lawyer in New York. Well, the, uh, there's another aspect to this uh, work that we hadn't yet discussed, which is that there's actually quite a bit of scholarship and I should say additional commentary um, about the phenomena of the the super tall, uh, the super thin, the super slim. Can you describe about how you went about the the sort of the the background research and the the scholarly bits? And I guess I should clarify for people: it's very clear how these are presented in the book, whereas you get. It, you know, it's a it's a coffee table book. It's a very full spread, full color, and the photographs are are very lovely. They're yours. They're they're um you know they're they're clearly film photography, and then there are inserts that are smaller um and with fine print, which kind of give the fine print of the architectural history and the economic phenomena. Uh, how how did you decide on that that formatting and and arrive at those uh, guest guest writers? I guess. Right. Okay. So it was actually a very close collaboration with the editors of the book who are from Czech Republic and they are running a gallery which deals only with art on the intersection of architecture. Um, And Irena Lechojivova, especially one of the editors, is like an extremely bright architectural historian. Um, she used to live in New York as well. Um, so this, it was like a really close collaboration of like thinking how to actually make the book. So she was the one who was really pushing hard to have proper essays by guest writers. And then we chose together the names for them, uh, among whom, yeah, the, there should have been um, new text also by Michael Sorkin, who you mentioned, um, but sadly he passed away during we were our work during COVID. Um, but yeah, so the idea was basically to make the book kind of as a catalog, similar to the real estate agents catalogs um, of the 25 
building. So there's this like little folds where you, which you can fold out and see this like data of the buildings, which actually many of that data comes from the Council of Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. Um, but besides that, it was also clear that the photographs uh, should be big, just because also that's how they are presented in this like real estate universe. Um, the photographs, which, by the way, are really kind of like opposing aesthetic to this, both the renders and the fine photography, which always depicts these spaces in like a permanent, beautiful summer outside, just simply because very often when I went to these places, it was raining outside or there was sometimes even literally a cloud outside the building. So I, I had no view at all. And the film photography is just extremely grainy at that at that type of weather condition. Um, and then on top of the photographs, it was also clear that I don't just want to show that these are like nice views, which also the views themselves get very repetitive after a while. But so I wanted to show this like conversation um, between Gabriella and the agents, which kind of I think show a lot of these like hidden things behind it. Just also this like gender bias that goes into these things. Um, also this like very genuine way how agents are trying to convince you to buy these apartments, which obviously would never have, I would never have been able to get this through any other type of research method than actually being that person. Um, and then it was also obvious that we, we should put all this into context. So we kind of like chose these seven subjects, which we wanted to show in the book, what they are about, like the history of the view in New York, especially um, apartment staging, which is a big thing in New York real estate. Um, I never heard about it before. And then somehow just the way we were kind of like researching the things, um, more and more interesting subjects came up. Also slenderness, which is just a new phenomena, which really belongs to these like tall pencil towers or, yeah. So somehow like this. And at the beginning, there is a long interview with Gabriella and Andy, um, done by the editors of the book, which kind of shows this like, nuanced difference between my billionaire alter ego and my real persona or the opinions of these two persons ne next to each other. Um, yeah, so somehow like that, the book came together and I, and I was really sure I wanted to be a pretty object. So that's how this like coffee table nests. Also, we were just like joking at the beginning that, yeah, we would love to have this book on those tables in these buildings. Um, I can remember, um, I've been through, let's see, I've been through the space of 157, the actual, you know, a high floor that was unfinished. So I've seen that. And then I went through the sales experience at 432 Park, which is something else. They take you into a small purpose-built theater and show you this incredible movie. And uh, the artifact that, that at the time, the project had not yet been built. This would have been 2013. They give you, you still have to send you away with something. So they sent me this giant book that had just construction photos of the demolition of the building that was going to make way for 432. I was like, who, who needs this stuff? I mean, like, they're beautiful pictures, you know, black and white, you know, journalistic photos of, you know, earth movers. 
you know, and I just thought, I just, I, are they, are they insecure? Do they want to to prove that this is real to to someone who's a potential adventurer? Like, look, we tore down buildings to make way for it. It's totally happening. It's not just a suite in this building. So, what were some of your favorite um, sort of artifacts and takeaways from these buildings? You know, now that they have progressed to reality. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so um, yeah, obviously those buildings which are still in construction and they cannot show the exact apartment, they show you around these like sales galleries, which they have a beautiful model in there. They show you, they build like a one-to-one bathroom. They build a one-to-one kitchen. In some of these apartments, you can choose like different color schemes. So they build two kitchens, let's say, and you can choose which one you like. And then with drawn footage, they show you of the floor you're interested in, the view that's going to be from there. Um, and then at the end, as you said, they give you a beautiful bag inside which there's like different artifacts. Uh, I think my favorite artifact was possibly from Lantern House by Thomas Hederick, uh, which is along the High Line. It's not such a tall building, but in its neighborhood, it still is a taller, taller building. Um, there was a little chocolate with the logo of the building in it. And I think actually also that book that it's not even a real estate brochure. I mean, it's it's like really a hardcover book with like different paper qualities in there with like um, golden stamping on every page. Like really this like all kind of graphic design tricks that they can have to show. I think it always, always just kind of tries to show that if they can make the graphics to this level, then the building is going to be also this extremely high quality um yeah so that is possibly the most beautiful book or like real estate brochure which i ever got was in the lantern house um also the moma tower had like a very interesting it was like a box and within the box there were like four or five different books each of them with a different subject so because it's the moma tower um they made impressions of the tower itself by 16 um, modern artists. So there was like a Dali painting, how the MoMA Tower, the 53 West 53, is kind of just like uh, flowing or like, yeah, melting down. Another one by Picasso, it was kind of like a cubist tower, etc., etc., which was, yeah, was different, but also it shows how, in what way they kind of try to frame the building itself. Um, so some of these towers really were trying to appeal to this like um, high culture. I think the MoMA Tower was one of those that were really trying to appeal to this um, artistic, cultured billionaire or millionaires or like wealthy people. Another one of these was the um, 56 Leonard, um, the Herzog and the Meron Tower which has an Anish Kapoor sculpture at the bottom, obviously, um, also kind of elevating the building to arts in that sense. Um, yeah, so I think through these like brochures and things that they, you can take away, they really show what tries to be unique in each building. And yeah, that, that was interesting in those. But I have this like massive brochure collection. 
Skipping ahead a bit in terms of after the book's publication, what was the response? Because I know from reading press clippings, for example, that you heard from dozens of realtors, it sounds like, but I am curious, did you ever hear from any of the architects of these buildings or have you ever discussed it with them as a peer? So I got a request from Herzog and the Maron architects to get a few copies of the book. Um, They obviously got some and they, they really liked it. So I was happy with that reaction. Um, I got a um, legal document from um, Rafael Vignoli Architects, <laughs> which by the time I wanted to actually read what was in the document was deleted, so I never got to know it. Um, and I think that was it about the architect side, these two. And, and, and what was the response from the realtors? Also, were you ever threatened with legal action? This came up where our previous guest uh, made sure that the statute of limitations ended before he published, so yeah. Right. Right, right, right. Um, the realtors did not get back to me, one of them. So I did not get any reaction from them. I got many emails from other real estate agents. All were positive, which was kind of surprising for me. But they all really liked the project. Most of them obviously were not working at this extreme high um, fringe of the market, but like the normal real estate agents. Um, and... The legal actions, actually, it was like a bit bold how we did the book. I, I never, to be honest, I never even thought about it, that I could get in any trouble. Um, the editors and the publisher was the same. They did not care at all. Um, and somehow after publishing, some people asked, so you were working with like a big group of lawyers on it, right? And I was like, why? Why should I? And and then I like through questioning, I realized that, oh, actually, there could have been some problem with this, but there was no problem. Thanks, God. <laughs> or like, yeah, thankfully. Um, I, but I went after it later, and that actually the only trouble or problem that could have been is the copyright of the architects, which means that through my photography, the floor plan, which is their copyright, could have been repeated or like copied which, yeah, um, would have been a bit hard to prove that it's through this photography since all of these apartments are online in Street Easy. So it didn't, yeah, it did not make too much sense that I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, and other than that, there was no, yeah, I did not publish the names of the realtors. I did not publish anything like that. The apartments are in construction. The objects are belonging to stagers. So it's not no one's property. I mean the developer's property, but that's kind of it. I was going to ask you what was next. What's the next project um, or at the risk of blowing your cover? (laughs) Um, I'm in New York. I'm not going to be able to visit more of these properties, I assume. But I'm working now in Dubai, actually, on the Bird Islands, which is Um, archipelago of 196 islands, um, which started to be built in the early 2000s. And because of the financial crisis, it never really was sold. It was meant to be sold to different ultra-wealthy people. Each of them would have had a huge villa on it. Um, It's kind of like a few miles off the shore of Dubai. and the only way to get there is actually leaving the country. So you have to go to the port authority, show your passport, go out, and when you come back, the same. Um, and so far, 
seven islands has anything on them. So it's like a really obviously failed project in one sense, but in the other sense, it's kind of is part of this like Dubai marketing and it's kind of part of Dubai showing to the world what they are capable of. Um, so in that sense, it's a successful project still. Um, so I visited that place once. I'm going to visit it again in the spring. Um, and what interests me about it is also this kind of like on the verge of this like success and failure of how every airplane that goes above Dubai goes above it. People are photographing it, are posting it. So it kind of does elevate Dubai's value in a way. Um and also, obviously, just engineering-wise, it is a very big deal that they could do that in the middle of the sea, even though the islands now are growing together because of the currents of the sea and how the sand is moving. Um, yeah, so that's that's my next project. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to go about it, but that's that's what I'm working on currently. It's congealing slowly into Pangea as we yeah, speak. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> The world, yes, and of course they have more than one palm as well. Um, yes, some of those yes, are yes, inhabited. yes, yes. Um, actually, so there's one palm which is just like fully empty; they did not finish it. Um, and the other palm is fully built in, but similarly to the New York skyscrapers, it's kind of also just this like tool of investment. So when I was walking around that part of the palm, which is this like private residences. Um, walking for hours and hours there was just um like gardeners walking around there no one else so it's also yeah it's a similar phenomenon obviously. i would say i visited the palm sales center in 2007 while reporting aerotropolis and included the line i met with the, there was a end of the day in the sales center this young british salesman i mean ty lucin was sipping on a mango juice and as we were perusing the models, I asked him, you know, how could the Palms infrastructure possibly bear up the number of planned residences? And he just thoughtfully said, there will never be a traffic jam on the Palm because of the fact that so many owners will never be residents, which Coolhaas, I think, remarked upon once, too, that like that Dubai represented this new type of truly globalist thing where the, popula the nominal population is totally transitory and or hallucinatory yes. for those reasons. So yes. Totally, yeah. totally, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, is, it, is this going to be an ongoing series for you then? I mean, I was going to say, I, you know, if you've looked into golf wealth then too, uh, I mean, the Russian diaspora uh, post-Putin invasion or Asian wealth or what other areas of interest and themes do you think you plan to follow through? So I'm also kind of researching at the same time the Iceberg Homes in London, um, which is basically buildings, um, which that's a lot of Russian wealth. Um, so in London, because of city regulations, you cannot really build high, just like in New York. So I think one of the interesting things as well that like depending on geographical locations and legislation, it's very different where the wealth goes. So in London, the only unregulated realm was kind of going underground, um, which you could do as of right, so to say. Um, so they built under this like Kensington villas, thousands of square meters worth of um, basically they are all amen amenities. So swimming pools, bowling courts, um, theater rooms, etc. So I was I yeah, I'm researching that as well. I went to London, visited um, from the outside only, obviously um, 61 of these properties. 
um, working together with um, Oliver Bolo, who's a um, journalist, and he, he's been running kleptocracy tours uh, around London, um, in which basically they kind of found out who the owners of these buildings are and, and told the story, stories to journalists about them. Um, while actually driving around these houses. Um, yeah, and that's a lot of Russian wealth, obviously. Um, I think they also used to call it Londongrad at some point when all this Russian wealth was coming in. Now it's also more regulated of how you can buy um, properties in there. Yeah. But there was also this uh, documentary filmmaker, uh, Roman... I don't remember his last name, um, who made a movie called From Russia with Cash. Um, and he pretended to be the Russian house minister um, and went to see apartments in London um, and said very clearly to the agents that he needs to buy these apartments in a way that his name is not going to appear on the papers because he got the money from the health ministry's pocket through some drug dealings. So he kind of really explicitly said the most extreme illegal things combined together, how he wants to buy these apartments, which obviously is absolutely illegal. And every single agent he went with just told him, yeah, 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 don't worry, we're going to find a way around it. So that, that was also very interesting. Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us on this broadcast. Um, this is a, a fascinating book. I, I, I know we're a few years late to the punch here, but um, I just thought it was too perfect um, having talked with um, another artist who had done uh, sort of uh, incursions into highly privileged territory that, that, mm -hmm. that we get you on here for your, your story. And I'm very excited to see what you do next. Thank so you that's so uh, Andy Schmid, uh, Private Views, the name of the book. And uh, it's been another episode of Unfrozen.